This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Sky and Hayden King. Episode one, this is, yeah. Episode one, this is the real deal. Mm-hmm. So we're recording on a Thursday. And it's a Thursday morning. Should our yes. listeners know that it's a Thursday morning? Yeah. I feel like there should be a timeless quality to these podcasts. Um, I feel like there should be like a, a a little bit of a cushion for us in case we say something and it ends up not being true because of like the lag between when we release them and when they are done. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a couple days. It takes us a couple days to process the podcast. Right. So if this part of our conversation makes it onto the podcast... People will know that it's been a couple days since we did this commute. Mm-hmm. Oh, jeez. police officer. Just on rear end and right on the ramp. Is, this, <laughs> is that distracted driving? Is podcasting safe? Can you pull over for that? Um, I don't think I can get pulled over because it's hands-free. And you're supposed to be doing all the fussing. So right. you're I'm driving. focused on the road. And you'll probably notice that like sometimes I get distracted or I'll like trail off in the middle of sentences or not really be paying attention because I'm paying attention to driving. So of course. So I'm going to finish drinking most of my coffee and focus on getting us to Toronto. I drive the car. Courtney is the pilot. Yes. I'm the navigator slash audio tech. Mm-hmm. So uh, should you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Courtney Sky. Where are you from, Courtney? I'm from Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. I'm Mohawk Turtle Clan. Mohawk Turtle Clan. Mm-hmm. What are your interests? My interests are podcasting, <laughs> uh, comedy, stand-up comedy, uh, and Twitter discourse. Twitter discourse. Yes. Also, agriculture. Horticulture. I Horticulture. Think. Agriculturalists. Yeah. My family are. I come from a long line of farmers, both the colonized and the decolonized variety. You also. You're also into policy? Yes. As um, you stated earlier, I'm a part of your prestigious indigenous think tank. First Nations think tank, sorry. Now, stated earlier, I, I feel like we have to cut those references out. Okay, because yes, you're right. people won't know right. what's stated earlier. We should, um, yeah. So we have been commuting for three weeks-ish, three a month. Three weeks. Yes. And so we had this brilliant idea to have this podcast recording our conversations that we have while we're while we're in the car and stuck in traffic on the way to our day jobs and it's so you're coming into a bit of the middle of our conversations right uh brilliant idea we'll, yeah. we'll see if it's a brilliant idea yeah um we're really just having conversations about whatever comes into our brain with no real structure or script. Um, I don't know why we thought this was a good idea, but our friends seem to like it. Yeah, our our focus group feedback has been really good. Maybe we'll put that on our Patreon. If you become one of our patrons, you'll get to hear our ridiculous pilot episode. Right. Well, my name's Hayden King. Yeah. Right. I'm from. <laughs> I'm from Beausoleil First Nation or Chimnasing. And that's in southern Ontario, mm-hmm. Nishinaabe, from the Eagle Clan with uh, Bear Clan connections. And 
yeah, I run a prestigious think tank at Ryerson University called Yellowhead. Do you have any other interests or is policy your only thing in hair care? <laughs> hair, yeah, my, my priority in my, my life is really making sure I have this coif on top of my head. This blue coif. My kids are the only people that still insist I have black hair. Oh, that's nice of them. I know. I don't know if they're doing it because they're just being really kind. Uh, or they, like me, don't really see all the gray in there, which sort of turns my head blue, which is, which is fine, which is fine. <clears throat> uh, yeah, hair care is an interest. Uh, indigenous policy, I guess, is an interest. I mean, you, you sort of do indigenous policy your whole life if you're, if you're, uh, I guess, if you're indigenous. But um, it's sort of been a recent turn for me, moving a little bit away from academia and towards uh, towards indigenous policy. Um, I in the back making noise. It's bothering the hell out oh, of me. Oh jeez! Can you you're interrupting my monologue here. I am. It's not a monologue. I'm not into horticulture or agriculture really at all, I, but I am a hunter. My interests are hunting, um, beadwork, playing the flute, buckskin, making buckskin. Yes, nativer than you. Yeah. My favorite hashtag. My favorite hashtag too. <laughs> we need to resurrect the nativer than you hashtag. Yeah. So the Red Road, we decided to call our podcast The Red Road because we're basically constantly checking maps to figure out the shortest route from Six Nations to East Hamilton to Toronto and back, and more often than not, we're leaving in the middle of rush hour and are on the dreaded Red Road. Has nothing to do with any Indigenous cultural uh, connection at all. That's not true because <laughs> I feel like many of our conversations are sort of about healing, broadly defined. Yes. And um, of course, the Red Road is all about getting on the path to being indigenous again and rediscovering, picking up what was taken from us back on the trail. What if you've always been indigenous? Well, I mean, we've always been indigenous. But there's an interesting conversation about that, right? Yeah, I was thinking about that. You called me, or you called my niece, Tradish. I did? Yeah, I was making, we were recording. We've done a lot of like side projects for this, uh, probably me more so, but my cousin and I have been doing some sound experiments, and one of the things is that like my niece was going to sing our intro song, and she was going to sing a scene song for us, but I hyped her up too much with cheesecake, and she had too much energy to focus, <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I wanted our niece to do like, or my niece to do this thing, and you were like, oh my god, so tradish. <laughs> I feel like Twitter DMs does not really capture tone <laughs> or genuine sentiment, actually. No, it doesn't, you're right. I always read your DMs with just like dripping in sarcasm. <laughs> uh, so half the time, maybe half, half the time, but not not that. I mean, it what it. I guess I yeah. What what's the difference between traditional and just being indigenous, right? I think that that's the big debate. The big debate is over the. I don't know how long it's been. I guess since forever, you know, 
there's always been this pressure to resist assimilation and get back to the roots and and um, revitalize our, of course, languages and songs. I think that I have a little bit of a different take on it because my family, so my family's a mix of traditional and non-traditional people. So my dad's family is very Haudenosaunee grounded. Like we're talking recorded as pagan in the census mm-hmm. kind of traditional people and they were really prosecuted not just by the government but by other indigenous people and pressure to give up old ways and kind of like see the forest for the trees and give up our traditional customs and so they were really isolated even in our own community to um and seen as being very backwards for keeping that alive. And then my mother's family was more progressive and definitely Anglican. And my aunt, my mom's older sister, told me the story this summer of, she remembers the Indian agent. The Indian agent came and told them it wasn't illegal to be Indian anymore. And they could be native again. And my aunt was like, we didn't know how to do that. We've we always been Indian. Yeah. But they didn't know... They were Anglican. Right. They went to church. Yeah. They didn't know how to behave like Indians. Mm. Even though they had lived and grown up on the reserve their entire lives, right? They had been generations removed from traditional practice at that point. Right. I mean, I have a similar story. You know, my grandfather's people... There have been many migrations from my grandmother and my grandfather's people and how they came together on the shores of Christian Island is a very long story, but basically my grandfather's people got there first in the early 1800s. Um, and they were Botawatomi and they were right traditional people. I mean, they, they, they brought ceremony and they, of course, I mean, it's the early 1800s. They're, they're you know, still quote unquote, authentically indigenous. And then when my grandmother's people came, in addition to all the other families that migrated to the island um, around 1830, 1840, they were with um, Anglican and and actually eventually Catholic missionaries. And so when they showed up, there were all these Potawatomi here, but they had converted. So they said, you know, you Potawatomis can stay here, but you have to go and live on the far side of the island if you're not willing to give up your... Uh, Indian religion so they were basically banished to the extreme end of the island um, and nearly starved you know they were eating seagull eggs and raccoons and whatever they could get their hands on while the rest of the island was converting and and um, and uh, it was a very long time before the two sort of camps came together and there's still really a divide I mean flash forward a few generations and then the divide becomes one of traditional people versus Catholics versus Anglicans and the island was actually divided in half that you know the Anglicans on one side and the Catholics on the other side so I think that that you know sort of phenomenon that you're talking about is pretty common but it goes back to this question about who and what is authentically indigenous right this this drive for indigenization and this drive for resurgence and revitalization. It's like, yeah, it makes sense. I, I mean, that's sort of a, not a really 
uh, diplomatic way of saying it. Of course it makes sense. Of course we want to be doing those things. But it, I think, leaves out two really important questions. And the first is, well, what happens if you've always sort of been Indigenous, quote-unquote authentically Indigenous? You know, you've, you've carried on the ceremony and you've carried on the culture and the language. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm already researched. Now what do I do? Um, and then the second question is, well, what is actually authentically Indigenous? I remember I was at a conference a couple of years ago and I was asked this question or maybe posed this question to myself, like, am I more or less Indigenous than my ancestors? And I had a really difficult time answering that question because do we count our path through colonization as contributing to our indigeneity? Do the external influences contribute to our indigeneity and how do we separate those out from this pure form of Indianness? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I really noticed that. So part of the, one of the organizations I work for would do these performance reviews because it was an indigenous organization, they one of the criteria they assessed people on is their ability to incorporate culture into your work and your ability to infuse indigeneity into whatever realm you did on behalf of the organization. And my supervisor had a really hard time assessing me because there was this acknowledgement that all of the decisions that I made were within indigenous paradigms and I had a really hard time struggling to name the ways in which I consciously made an effort to do that when there was kind of acknowledgement of being like the way that I operate and the worldview that I exist in is seen as as Haudenosaunee and that I've moved beyond that idea of that I need to, that I need to consciously make an effort to incorporate things, right? And there was nothing within the way that staff were evaluated that allowed for that, right? There was this mm -hmm. assumption of colonization and needing to overcome it. Right. Yeah, there's sort of, I think there's those two assumptions and that there's sort of an insidious essentialism that is woven through them both. The first is that there's a before and after. Like there, you were indigenous and then there's contact and then now you're corrupted. And there's some, there's some, uh, a defect that colonization has uh, implanted or imparted and so you can't really be truly indigenous because of that until you get back of course to this magical decolonial de place well pan-indianism is a part of getting back to that place I think but then the second is this image that I think a lot of settlers have and really perpetuate but we do as well I think you know the sort of the more uh, masculine indigenous sovereignty texts there you know this is what it means to be indigenous and if you don't achieve the, these warrior-like qualities etc then you know you, you you're not indigenous and so this essentialism is held up against you and you're tested against it and if you don't meet the criteria I think at least in settlers eyes then you're not indigenous and so the culture the indigeneity becomes more abstract and separate from our lived experiences. Like, you can't put indigeneity on a chart and then compare Courtney to that chart. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe you can, I don't know. 
you know what? I could put a lot of thought into that data metric. <laughs> I made a really good chart yesterday at work, or I presented a very good chart at work yesterday, and it was perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would like to see the chart of authentic indigeneity, the Venn diagram. Oh, the, get ben, your, the Venn diagram. Get your aboriginal, get your indigenous, get your non-status <laughs> circles, get your authentic, pure Indian circle, yeah. and see where they overlap. Erase the slurs that the niche wrote into your chart. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's a little bit of an inside joke. Yeah, we have too many of those. One of our one of the comments on uh, from our focus group was we had too many inside jokes, so we have to uh, explain our inside jokes or not make them. No, you know what it is, listener. You're in the jokes. <laughs> you are also a part of this. You are. If you listen to this long enough, you'll recall our inside jokes, okay. and you will become incorporated. That's the whole point of podcasting, is to feel like they're a part of the group. All right. The people that are listening should feel like they are also in the car and in on the jokes. Let's just fill this Kia Sorento with our friends and listeners. Mm-hmm. Although nobody wants to be stuck on the red road. No. No one wants to be in this car with us. Although, um, yeah, we will have guests eventually. Special guests. Yeah, special guests. Probably my mom at some point. All right. Yeah. Arliss. Yeah. Can't wait. We get to meet her and Sue. Sue will be a great addition to the podcast. Sue Hill, mm-hmm. esteemed professor at the University of Toronto. Probably my boss, too. Really? She makes the commute, yeah. Wow. Can't wait for our guests. Yeah. All strong Haudenosaunee women. I'm already <laughs> intimidated. You should be. <laughs> so... I feel like that was a really uh, uh, long bit of... A long of, uh, way to explain Native than you. <laughs> well, not a long way to explain Native or you. I feel like it was sort of connected to the Red Road, right? Oh, yeah. This is like, what does it mean to be on the Red Road? What's the metaphor here? I mean, the Red Road, our podcast, the highway stuck in traffic, but also the Red Road to, to healing and indigenous resurgence and revitalization yeah especially because we're on this specific physical road of connecting territories and land that has been continuously occupied for 4,000 years and understanding that a lot of the highways system within Canada is based on historic trails that indigenous people have traveled Maybe yes. we're just the next in a long line of Haudenosaunee and Nish people that have been exacerbated and frustrated <laughs> trying to get to their hunting camps. That's right. Trying to get to their summer homes. <laughs> I feel like there was less traffic. Although... You know what? We went through a major genocide. There were more of us. There were, there were more of us, yeah. See what I did there? I, I just basically affirmed the colonial myth of Terra Nullius. That's how embedded deeply colonization is in my psyche. See, no, I'm there were traffic jams then, and too, of course there were. We we're trying to, we we're pushing those Cayugas out of the way. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be heading south, Mohawks. <laughs> what are you talking about? There was a Seneca village in Scarborough. I've and never heard of it. You've never heard of it? No. There's a National Historic site there. No, I don't believe it. It's like the only 17th century Seneca village. It's There's in no Scarborough. Haudenosaunee in Toronto? No. And if you go east of the Don, that's where the Cayugas were. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Haudenosaunee, 
bumped out of Toronto land acknowledgements all the time. Freaking Huron Wendats get top billing over Haudenosaunee people. Friggin'. Friggin'. Friggin' Huron the Hurons. Wendats. Oh my goodness. Hurons can get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Road. <laughs> That's not making it into the podcast. <laughs> Uh, it can be one of our teasers. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, I do feel a little bit. So one of the other things that I do, as you know, Courtney is uh, the Ogima Mikina Project, which is a language arts activist group uh, co-founded with Susan Blight, where we go around and we change all these street signs to Nishinaabemowin versions, and sort of reinsert our presence and push back against the race erasure of indigeneity but you know sometimes I feel bad because we're sort of erasing Haudenosaunee presence I mean I obviously some uh Nottaway came through <laughs> Toronto um there is a presence but uh you're right there is a little bit of a an erasure of of Haudenosaunee presence in in Toronto although I mean, if you talk to some of your historians, they'll say all of our stories are from New York State. I mean, we don't have a lot of stories of our origin or our uh, our, our early years as Haudenosaunee in, in the, on the North Shore of Lake Ontario. Yeah, we definitely have that more, you know, the Mohawk Valley and especially the changing dynamics within peoples and their territories through colonization and displacement, right? Like, we were, Mohawks were displaced to the Grand River Territory, but we also have the Anishoni Territory in Wisconsin, and Quebec, and New York State, and our territory, even today, is vast. (laughs) (laughs) The Imperial Haudenosaunee. Yeah. Uh, The OG colonizers, as I like to call us. Um... My favorite historical Haudenosaunee story of like close contact is when the Jesuits came into this area and were trying to be missionaries and they built a, a mission and the Haudenosaunee burnt it down in 1648 and then waited for them to completely rebuild it and then burnt it down again amazing. in 1649. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, all these, all these white historical writers, political scientists, whatever, talk about indigenous savagery you know people open their books with these excerpts of of some Indian war party killing they're a Jesuit they're always Haudenosaunee <laughs> it's always Haudenosaunee well, there is when, a bu- in, in the constitution when they're saying merciless Indian savages they're talking, they're about, talking about Haudenosaunee uh, I don't believe I don't doubt it I don't doubt it but you met Haudenosaunee women today it's uh, no uh, classic enablers they're <laughs> There's a few books. There's a book called Masters of Empire, which is all about uh, Nishnabek, and the opening scene is uh, these warriors burning down a fort and roasting alive the inhabitants and eating their hearts, etc., etc. You know, very Joseph Boyden yeah. uh, vibe. But you the know, white part imagination. Of, but, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but part of me is sort of like. Yeah, that perpetuates stereotypes and <laughs> is awful. But part of me is like, yes, fuck you, Jesuit colonizer. You got what you deserved. So, but that's a secret. Don't let the white colonizers know about that. And the, the, the contemporary white academic colonizers know that. And they'll just write more books of savage Indians. 
But, you know, I'll, I'll concede definitely that, uh, that Toronto has shared Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabek, and Huron territory. Uh, the whole corridor is, you're right, yeah, this whole, this whole road, this whole, all of this territory. We've got to figure out how to share it, I guess, <clears throat> and push these uh, settlers off. That's where, you know, you know my idea about what reconciliation means. Yes. We, we shouldn't be... We shouldn't be stuck in, in traffic in our territory. If, yeah. if settlers were serious about reconciliation, there would be the HOV lane, and then there would be the Indian lane. If you would like to hear this full story, <laughs> become a patron for us on Patreon. <laughs> Can we Exclusive recycle content? content? Yeah, we'll, okay, we'll, we'll recycle let's content. reinsert that. Right here, we're going to insert uh, Hayden's theories for um, reconciliation along the highway. And the dream of reconciliation. What the dream of reconciliation means for Indian commuters. The Indian lane on the highway. If people were serious about reconciliation, there would be an HOV lane and there would be the Indian lane. <laughs> yeah. And we would be flying through this fucking traffic and all the Canadians would be waving at us and saying, yeah. Oh, it's okay, go ahead. It's the Indian lane. And no one would be trying to sneak into it. And be like, this is your highway, this is your lane. Take yeah. four lanes. This route that and you're taking. And all the Canadians have yeah. the one lane on the far side that they have to exit and entry and exit and get onto. That, that's what reconciliation would be. This is also like. And then I could get into it. The idea of like this actual path that we're taking, like from Six Nations into Toronto, is like a well worn, established path that like Haudenosaunee and Nish people have traveled, you know, for... We're doing a really awful job at reclaiming it, aren't we? Yeah. Well, we're doing it with humor. <laughs> I guess so. There was a, a bear loose in Byward Market in Ottawa this morning, running wow. around the market, and... Is it still on the loose? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't been able to check the news. Right. But that was the news this morning. And so, um, people Take were like... Take it over. Take it over, little bear. People were like, it was a full-grown black bear. And I was like, what is that? Like the size of a small St. Bernard? <laughs> <laughs> like, like a full-grown black bear is not, you Not know, that big? Not that big. I, I don't know. I've seen some pretty big... Black, black so bears. the average black bear so I tweeted this right I was like chirping this bear because everyone's like oh it's a full grown black bear and I was like I don't think black bears are that big they are quite small little creatures and uh, Emily did not believe me and she was like there's no way a dog is bigger than a bear the average weight of a St. Bernard is 140 to 260 pounds the average weight of a black bear, female, is 100 to 150 pounds. Really? Yeah. That's surprising. And I think that the male black bears go up to like 180. All fur. Yeah, all fur, all fluff. I... And if they've like, if they're preparing to hibernate, like at their peak weight, they get up to like 300 pounds. I don't care. I would sooner, I would sooner fuck with a St. Bernard than a black bear. <laughs> I do a lot of paddling and tripping. Oh, Hashtag nativer than you. Yeah. And people would be afraid of bears if I yeah. would take new people and I would try to explain it to them. Like, no, don't worry about it. A, a black bear is just like a big raccoon. You know, <laughs> it's nothing to worry about. 
and then I realized immediately that's a terrifying description <laughs> of a black bear. A huge raccoon? A huge, massive imagine? raccoon? A uh, Toronto-sized yeah. raccoon. <laughs> yeah, that's basically a black bear. Yeah. If anything, raccoons are wilier, especially urban raccoons. Oh, they're the wiliest. Yeah. No, I... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Raccoons are... Mm-hmm. Raccoons are <laughs> the urban Indians <laughs> of the animal world. They just adapt and make this place their own. They reclaim it. They don't care if mm-hmm. there's forests or streams or anything. They just... Live in attics and basements? <laughs> <laughs> no, they live up top. You know, they, they live wherever they want. Yeah. Raccoons. Raccoons. It's, they're not out of sight, you know. They're they're right there. Everyone knows about the mm-hmm. raccoon. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't put the raccoon down in the city. People only care about them when they're dead. <sighs> I'm well, ruining your, me- I, I'm that's ruining not your the, metaphor. Yeah, you're totally. I'm ruining, ruining your metaphor. metaphor. I'm sorry. The opposite. I could play along with this better, and I'm not. It's okay. Much like a raccoon. <laughs> well, I wish that black bear luck. Did you read that article in the Toronto Star that long read about raccoons? No, and how some raccoons have figured out the raccoon-proof bins? I don't doubt it. They think it's like faulty bins. No, it's faulty humans. There is one raccoon that has figured out how to strip the nuts of the spring on the <laughs> lids. So it's just essentially one genius raccoon. And there are like these small pockets of raccoons that are slowly figuring out this problem. They have like the girth and the intelligence to break into the new green bins. Maybe they've evolved. Raccoons I mean, of course they have. They have, of course they've evolved. I mean, yeah. red-tailed hawks have evolved. I mm-hmm. mean, it's all these animals that have learned to. Raccoons have definitely evolved. I have a joke about this in my stand-up. I know you've it. only heard some of my terrible stand-up jokes, um, but I definitely have a joke about just how like. So the Toronto Zoo has raccoons in their display. And my question is, is the raccoon that's on display at the Toronto Zoo a modern Toronto urban intelligent raccoon or is it a country raccoon that is less evolved? And do city raccoons come to the Toronto Zoo to learn about their ancestral heritage? Are we still on with this metaphor? Because <laughs> uh, I think it may fall down right here. Yeah, this is the thing that I don't agree with. Because city raccoons are smarter and bigger than the raccoons in the country. They're definitely... Uh, yeah, well, yeah. It's I mean, I've seen some big raccoons in the country, but you're right. You're right. It's yeah. generational, though, right? There are many generations of raccoons. That's true. There are massive raccoons in the city. Yeah. You they do not see no in the predators. That's the problem. I don't really see a lot of raccoons in the bush. I'm just... This lane is not closed, right? I can stay in this, like... That guy up there is doing in the Porsche? I think there's some flooding. Oh, well, this is a uh, rental. It's closed. Oh, okay. There we go. So, is there an answer to the question that you pose about this raccoon, or is that the end of the joke? That's the joke, right? Oh, okay. I, I think that the raccoons do take their... do learn about their ancestral heritage, that they're... that they take their children to the zoo on... Um, like one of those little ropes they walk and they have their baby raccoons and they show them the raccoons they take their garbage and they sit there and they eat and watch this Neanderthal <sighs> raccoon and watch him struggle to make fire oh man 
Well, I don't that's de- the joke. raccoons could definitely make fire if they yeah. want to, I, I believe, yeah. That's the joke, is that raccoons know how to make fire. <laughs> you gotta wonder what that interaction is. I mean, I don't go to zoos on principle, mm-hmm. but you gotta wonder what that interaction is, because there's gotta be wild animals roaming through zoos, mm-hmm. Toronto zoos, or maybe they just know enough to stay as far away as they can. I mean, birds. I mean, they fly through, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like, if anything, raccoons would be breaking into the raccoon enclosure. And freeing their relatives? Not freeing their relatives, getting the free meal. (laughs) And the free lodging? Just going. And the 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 captive raccoons would just be scared. It's like a timeshare for raccoons. And if you are, maybe that's how they get healthcare. The city raccoons just go and they have illnesses and they go and they check into the zoo and they get seen by the zoo vet and they go on display for a little bit. And then they go back into the wilderness. That is something smart that I think raccoons would do. They would figure out how to game captivity. I think Daniel Heath Justice is writing a book on raccoons. There's like, if anyone could figure out how to game captivity, it's like cats, right? Cats domesticated themselves. Raccoons are going to be the next creature that domesticate themselves. They're training humans how to feed them and care for them. I think that might be a stretch, but... We'll see what Daniel has to say. You you say that now, but in five years, you're going to be the gatekeeper or the, the caretaker for a whole family of raccoons, and they'll have shown you. <laughs> I lived in uh, an apartment in Parkdale, and um, I felt so awful when I moved out because we had this family of raccoons living back there, and they lived on top of a little shed in our mm-hmm. sort of park at backyard, and they just shit everywhere <laughs> all over the roof all over the the interlock brick mm-hmm. in the in the little mm-hmm. 10 by 10 backyard and moved out of the place in the middle of winter in mm-hmm. february and didn't have a chance to you know <laughs> you just scoop, left all the scoop up all shit. the raccoon shit and then i Why would you? i tried to like turn on the hose and throw some hot water on there and yeah. melt the raccoon yeah. shit and like get it onto yeah. the it didn't yeah. work and so i felt i to this day i feel a little bit of regret mm-hmm. for leaving the Mm-hmm. <laughs> pile of raccoon shit in the backyard even though it wasn't my fault it was the raccoon's fault you know what those raccoons have been shitting on that that uh, building since time immemorial <laughs> <laughs> yeah it sounds like there's a lot going on I mean the social media didn't you say you wanted a YouTube channel or something I do want a YouTube channel I want to be YouTube famous you need to monetize that content how do you monetize content it Please leave a comment in the, <laughs> on this uh, post. Uh, how do we monetize content? Podcast tips for getting rich. That's, yes. what, that's what we need. All yes. you Indian podcasters out there. Rick Harp, <laughs> give, tell us your secrets. Help. Yeah. No, that's the thing too, right? And the, I think the point of like, I often joke about this, but like having a monetized YouTube account or becoming like Twitter famous or whatever. All of these are just schemes that I have to eventually live an anti-capitalist life and just drive around in a camper van and do advocacy type policy on the road. But isn't that... Frontline of resistance. Do you need speaking points? I'm a really good speaking point writer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like it's not really an anti-capitalist life because you're relying on... That's true. The very... Mm-hmm. Late stage capitalist technologies yes. for accumulation. Yes. Um, 
would you call it then? Apathetically capitalist? Apath- no. Uh, Warily capitalist? <laughs> I would just call it capitalist. <laughs> Feminist red, capitalism? Red capitalism. Yes, exactly. Modern bougie Indian capitalism. All the bougie Indians out there, all the emerging indigenous middle class, it's your cultural obligation to help us pay for our gas for this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I mean, this is, we should qualify this podcast. Two Indians stuck in traffic. <laughs> on their way in the to middle the, class. On their way to their day job, stuck in the middle class. <laughs> Definitely going to be stuck in the middle class for the rest of my life, if I'm lucky. Um, <laughs> yeah, if I'm lucky, I've managed to crawl myself out of poverty enough to stay out exactly. of poverty. <laughs> yes, That's exactly. the indigenous middle class. Yes. Please do not let me slip back into poverty. I'll, I'll save my... <laughs> monologue for how proud I am of being middle class considering my my uh, upbringing but mm-hmm. we should we should you know we're two privileged Indians basically yes we are uh, in this uh, we have this immense class rent, privilege fancy 2008 rented Kia yeah what is it Sorrento Sorrento we're in a rental right now that's just a bougie word Sorrento yeah so I'm buying a new vehicle too, right? I picked up my vehicle. I'm going to. I'm actually going through the process of buying a car right now. My first car, my first non-res beater car. Amazing. The first vehicle I'm paying more than two thousand dollars for. Whoa. Mm-hmm. What uh, What are we going to be driving in? Uh, Hyundai Tucson. Hmm. So is that a small car or a large car? It's a little bit smaller than this. Oh, okay. It's this, I, this vehicle's way too big for like the commute that we do and the, all the driving that I do. The parking? Yeah. The Tucson has just two, two rows. This has three rows of seating. The, wow. The, the one's yeah. down. It's very roomy. Yeah. It's a nice vehicle. No, it's not. I don't, I hate <laughs> driving it. It's a really bad drive. So I used to go to this meeting where mm-hmm. there would be um, basically a, 45 minute to hour long check-in mm-hmm. I could not handle it I could not handle going to this meeting with everybody checking in and saying what was going on in their personal life and how their uncle was sick or how their cat is not peeing cat properly. has to get a massive crystallized pee extracted from its <laughs> bladder whatever that is like peak Toronto cat care right now that is like the deepest cut right now because so many cats I know cannot pee and it's causing chaos to work cultures because people have to take their stupid cats to the vet or talk for 45 minutes about their stupid cat and it's hard and cats have nine lives your cat's gonna make it out fine it'll make it (laughs) yeah the cat didn't make it that sad my friend right now her cat is very sick everyone please send your prayers up for Truman he's going through a lot of health issues right now but uh yeah this these cats are yeah so the cats are a problem i i could not handle the cats go- are I, not all right i had to actually quit going to this meeting because i couldn't handle spending an hour mm-hmm. not doing the work we were supposed to be doing there I, listen i i want to i want people to check in feel good you know mm-hmm. let me hear about your personal life but on the other hand i just want to get work done yeah so i, I think that is a, a phenomenon that is a part of this whole like indigenizing the institution that it's like this I feel it's what I often see it as is like a an idea that there are qualities of indigeneity that are not business oriented or not work focused and it kind of plays into these 
I don't know if they're negative stereotypes, but these like preconceived ideas that indigenous people don't have a business acumen or desire to be engaged in academia and so we have to do these other things that are seen as like not a part of that or contrary to that which I don't know have ever been a part of our culture or that by doing things and being like effective in business we're somehow being anti-indigenous yeah, when I we have a long history of trade and commerce and those kinds of things right we are we are people that are capable of like sophisticated business and you know our own structures and those types types of things right but it's getting translated into this weird like we need to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to smudge and it's like don't you clean yourself before you leave the house in the morning i don't understand i don't yeah you're absolutely right i think indigenization Mm -hmm. gives rise to all these grotesque articulations of Mm -hmm. trying to squeeze certain practices and customs into completely hostile and foreign environments. Performative. It's a lot of it's performative, but on the other hand, it's helpful for a lot of people. A lot of people find their culture or get back to, to their, but get back to the red road in places Mm -hmm. like universities. Um, and that's important and that's good, but I struggle with it. I, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, really want to smudge before meetings I, I, at a, in a university setting. Um, I'm going to excerpt this into a little thing on my phone and just play it at the beginning of meetings. <laughs> so it's your voice saying, I don't really want to smudge at the beginning of meetings. Uh, I respect... This is going to cut, be cut from the podcast. <laughs> I respect... Everyone's going <laughs> to... Yeah, this is our most controversial take. People are going to be like... I agree with you though, right? I agree with like, like this idea that... I don't know. I feel like if we're truly taking advantage of the time and space we're creating to do and create change, I'm more inclined to not do certain cultural or ceremonial things to take advantage of the times that we have to make decisions and really thoughtfully think out the change that needs to happen for the people that aren't in the room that don't have access to that kind of culture or don't have access to that kind of like practice because to me like a lot of my meetings are focused on like the well-being of children and I don't really care about the well-being of their helpers is that <laughs> or, harsh? or your colleagues or, or my colleagues right or like well I, they need the, the people that are making some of these decisions these very heavy decisions need to be in a good place mentally and spiritually so that is important it's just whether or not we try to smash these Mm -hmm. sort of cultures of being into one another Um, because I don't I don't know if the results are really effective I mean I guess in some cases it uh, it it has worked in my experiences but in many cases it it hasn't in my experience it's an opportunity for white women to think they're learning about indigenous culture but they're really learning about Anishinaabek culture and then they weaponize (laughs) it against Haudenosaunee people and want to know why we don't have culture because we don't want to smudge before meetings the hegemony yeah i can see that that's a Mm. that's a that's a fair critique Mm -hmm. uh i think that that's definitely part of it and it goes back to this performativity 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 that you that you mentioned i mean it's the land acknowledgement Mm -hmm. is is another good good example like toronto at least eastern toronto is my traditional territory so it's kind of odd to to do the land acknowledgement and when a bunch of indians get together Mm -hmm. and meet we don't do the land acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. The only time we do the land acknowledgement is when white people are in the room. And 
they have become thirsty for it. It's not so much like, let's do the land acknowledgement and make the white people uncomfortable and make them remember and realize that they're on indigenous land and have obligations to indigenous people. Um, it's moved beyond that in some ways where it's, where the land, where it's just the, 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 your white university administrators are like, we can't start the meeting without a land acknowledgement. Please let's symbolically gesture towards reconciliation and uh, then get onto agenda item B. Which also reminds me, um, I was supposed to find someone to do a land acknowledgement for an event in Toronto. So if you know anyone that has some time on a Saturday coming up to do a land acknowledgement for me, I'm trying to hook up a white lady that I work with. <laughs> hey, red capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Get As long paid. as they're going to get paid, Get I paid, guess. yeah. <clears throat> No, sell out your culture, make money, <laughs> the world is ending, take advantage of late capitalism while we can. I feel like, you know, my, my good friend and colleague Vanessa Watts has this uh, really sharp critique of, mm. of sort of corporate smudging, right? Bringing, bringing indigenous ceremony into mm -hmm. colonial spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think I agree with her, you know, it's, the, there's, it's just mm -hmm. not the place because it is so superficial and so hollow and so performative and co-opted um, and yet at the same time I'm 100% sympathetic to students in particular who are um, you know maybe maybe smudging for the first time in these places and finding a community in these places because there is a community and so I guess what I'm saying is so uh, why does that community have to exist within the view and practice of non-indigenous people I don't think that it does I think I think it's drawn. I, I think that non-Indigenous people, white people in particular, want to see Indians perform. Is it because um, they're soulless and hungry for culture? Uh, this is a comedy podcast. Yes. And it is like... <laughs> right. What happened to the jokes? <laughs> this is a comedy podcast. These are not takes. Is... These are jokes. <laughs> I'm not serious. Please right. let me keep my job. I love capitalism. <laughs> I guess we should have had a disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast. You know, Don't hold anything that we say against us. This is... This is a, a podcast for controversial opinions. Um, this is a podcast for tongue-in-cheek commentary about the daily grind of existing in colonial spaces, I guess. I don't know. Is so, it, maybe we should reserve... <laughs> I, I, I you feel, have reservations? I, I have reservations. <laughs> I feel like we've, we should, we've bracketed a few conversations already. Like, what... <laughs> We're stuck in traffic for two hours and we don't have enough time to talk about appropriation in the university or the structure agent dilemma. These are, yeah, these are the, the problems with our podcast too because we also are coming up to the end of our drive. That's right. We're very close to the parking lot where we park our, uh, the vehicle and we'll be getting back at this when we get back Thank at the end of the day. Fuck. You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car through the pond.